Dear Father, we thank you so much for your covenant faithfulness. Uh, we thank you that we have a record of your keeping your promises in the Old Testament and in the New. We thank you that uh, the hope that we have of our eternal glory together with you, of our ruling and reigning with you in the kingdom, of our ultimate salvation, we thank you that that is absolutely guaranteed. We thank you that you will be vindicated in this creation, that you will restore uh, your ruler in Jesus Christ, and that he will rule over all of creation. We do praise you for uh, this covenant that you gave to Abram, and that you are still faithful to it today. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. This is quite an episode, and it is a strange one to be sure. Sometimes it kind of seems a little hard to understand what's going on here with Abram, so we'll parse it uh, and come to a better understanding of this odd covenant ritual. We are moving in our sermon series here from the covenant of promise into covenant ritual, and this is a very large section of scripture that, Lord willing, we will get through this morning, but it's just kind of hard to cut this ritual in half, no pun intended. Uh, it is all one episode, so we want to take at least a broad overview of it, and then we can continue to dig into the pieces of the uh, Abrahamic covenant again, no pun intended. It's just too easy. So our main point this morning is that Abram seeks assurance from God concerning possession or experience of what God has promised him. God has given him unconditional ownership of a land and a promise of a seed, and Abram asks how he can experience that. God responds by establishing an unconditional covenant with Abram that sets in motion a program of restoration for all of creation, which will continue until God will be victorious and the kingdom of God will be restored over all of creation with Messiah as God's theocratic administrator. This is the beginning to the end of the solution. This is how God begins to restore theocracy into creation. What he had established in the garden and man gave up when he decided rather than to follow God's will, he would follow the will of the creation. Here God begins to prepare the way for the Messiah, who would be the ultimate ruler who is faithful to God's will to exercise it in his rulership of creation. And we begin with a verse we didn't have time to get to last time, and it's just as well because it's good to spend some time on this verse. And we want to understand how salvation worked in the Old Testament, but also why is this verse here of all places? Is this the beginning of Abram's saving faith, or is it the basis for the covenant? And I think the latter is a much better understanding of this verse. So in order to understand it, we want to understand when does this verse take place? We have a promise of assurance of a savior seed in the first five verses of this chapter, and we're about to see the promise of land reassured. These are the two first clauses of the Abrahamic covenant, followed, of course, by blessing, that this would be a permanent experience for them, something that God is going to need to restore them to life and to fellowship in order for them to enjoy. But based on these promises, this verse is wedged right in the middle. And it's easy to take this then 
as meaning it comes next in the order on a timeline. But that's not what this one means. Because it is the same vav, this is just a connecting, it means the same thing as and usually in English. But it can mean and, it can mean but, it can mean so, it can mean then, it can mean now. We did this a few months ago when we looked at Genesis 12 to see that Abram's taking Lot with him was not expected but unexpected. Rather than an and, it should be a but there. But Abram took Lot with him after God had told him to separate from his family. Here we're looking at some more grammar that says that this does not follow in a timeline, but rather it has a logical con connection to the context. So we would say, and he believed in the Lord, or so he believed in the Lord. This, rather than being a vav consecutive, and again, the vav is just that letter in Hebrew, consecutive meaning next in order in time. Instead of that, this is a vav conjunctive. It just simply means that these are connected intimately because of logic, usually because of cause, but it has nothing to do with a temporal relationship or timeline. We know this because these chains that are created by Hebrew verbs, in order to have a vav consecutive where it follows in time, you need a perfective verb and then a chain of imperfective verbs. That's not what we see here. Instead, we have either a perfective or imperfective followed by perfective verbs. These just are about aspect of a verb. How is the writer thinking about it? Does he look at the action as complete or does he look at the action as incomplete? Here, he is using it to separate this from the context, to take this out of the string of timeline events and to say this has something to do with cause, not time. And so this is the basis for the covenant. Moses is adding this in here as an editorial note. He is not recording the timeline of what happened, but he's saying, because of Abram's faith here, this is happening. Because of Abram's faith, this is able to happen. So we see that this is not necessarily connected in the timeline. It doesn't mean that God told him about the Savior Son or the seed promise. And then Abraham believed, was justified, saved, and then God gave him the land promise. Rather, Moses is noting that this is the promise that Abram had believed. And having believed this promise of a seed, he had been justified. He had been reckoned righteous. This looks back into Ab the beginning of Abram's relationship with God. And he had believed in the Lord, and he, being God, reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. When did this happen? If it doesn't happen in the timeline, well, in Hebrews 11.8, jumping forward into the New Testament commentary on the Old, it says that by faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed. Because of Abram's faith, he began to obey God. When God said, do something, Abram did it. Now, he didn't do a great job all the time at doing this, but he did it when he did it because of faith. By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
Now he went out, meaning he started his journey, but he went out here for the purpose of receiving that inheritance. This is either his departure from Ur of the Chaldeas or from Haran. Either way, this faith of Abram towards God began before he entered the promised land. It's Genesis 12:4 where we see Abram going forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot going with him, or but Lot went with him. And now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now the promises that he went to receive were these. God said, go forth from your country, your relatives, from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And here are the promises that God makes to him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. These are not promises that God makes to unbelievers. These are not promises that God makes to people who are not in a relationship with him, who have not placed their faith in him and so have been justified because it is righteousness that is necessary in order to place us in the presence of God. It is righteousness that in its absence, we can't be in relationship with him. See, it's not just the presence of sin, but the absence of righteousness. God took care of the sin issue on the cross. It is the absence of righteousness today that keeps people from salvation. They need to receive not self-righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And this Abram did before he even knew who Jesus Christ would be, before he would even know that this Savior seed would be a man named Jesus who would come in flesh, being fully God, and die on a cross and rise again three days later. Abram did not know any of this. But he knew that God had promised life through a seed. And he trusted that. I like what Jim Myers says about this passage. He said, would God make such promises to one who is unsaved unthinkable? Just a simple, simple concept. God does not make eternal promises to unsaved people. The eternal promises come through that salvation. So what was Abram's saving faith? Because this verse was one of the catalysts of the Reformation, that justification came by faith alone. In response to the Catholic doctrines of adding other ordinances, works that you must do in order to be saved, they clarified the gospel and they did so by looking back to Abram's faith and saying that Abram was justified by faith. And now, unfortunately, this very same tradition that comes from the reformers originally has strayed back into works salvation, saying that saving faith is not faith alone or by itself, but saving faith that adds works to it. This is the same this is the same thing that they departed from when they left Catholicism, but now they have wandered back to it. But we still stand firmly in the understanding that salvation has always come by faith alone on the basis of God's grace. And so when we look at salvation through the entire scriptures, we see that there is only one element that changes. Everything else is exactly the same. And so salvation is exactly the same in all times in history. The requirement is always faith. 
Faith alone, simple trust in God to work out his program in the way that he has ordained. Faith, trust in God, that life comes through him and his promise. The basis is always the death of Jesus. This is known in God's mind. We don't need to understand this or know this in history. It has become part of the content of saving faith now. But for Abram, it wasn't. But that does not change the fact that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, would need to die in order to bring about the fulfillment of this promise that Abram trusted in. God knows this, and that's what's important. The object of faith is always God's word, God's promise. And remember that it is not the subject of faith, the person who is believing, but the object of faith, the object in whom that faith is placed. That is the determining factor for whether or not salvation is sure. It has nothing to do with the believer's steadfastness or sturdiness or ability to continue believing despite all of the twists and turns of life, but in the strength and the steadfastness of the object in which he believes. Abram believed in the promise of a perfect and mighty and all-powerful God who cannot lie and who knows the beginning from the end. The object of Abram's faith was strong and sturdy, and his salvation was sure because of it. Now, it is the content of the promise, the content of what we are told to believe, that changes. This is not a change in the means of salvation. The means are all listed in the first three points. But this is how do we access that. Even in the requirement, faith is the same. But what has been revealed to us? Because Scripture was not all revealed to us at one time. There has been a progress of revelation. And at the time that Abram believed, not one word of the scriptures that we hold in our hands today had been written as it is. Moses was the first one to record scripture. And so Abram did not have a Bible that he could read. Abram couldn't turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 and see what the content of saving faith for a future body of the church that he probably wouldn't have understood had God even explained it to him would have taken many seminary courses for him to understand this concept of 4,000 years from now, God is going, or 2,000 years from now, God is going to begin a spiritual organism that is not a national body, and it's going to be in the body of the Messiah who is to come, which he would have had to explain that concept too. What Abram did understand is God has promised to fix the problems that man has created. The problem of death, the problem of inability to rule over this creation because of separation from God. God is fixing that relationship. God is giving life where death has been introduced, and he is doing so by means of a promised seed. This seed promise is always at the center of this content of saving faith. We are always believing something that God has revealed about this Savior who is to come, or for us, who has come. Primarily, we are believing who he is and what he has done or will do. For Adam, this was a very simple gospel. In fact, for us, it's unbelievably simple as well. 
Again, as I mentioned last week, we don't under, have to understand how God has this work. There are ways that we can understand elements of it to a great degree because God has revealed it in Scripture. But in order to begin that relationship with God, in order to be saved, we don't need to have a complex understanding of theology. We just simply need to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what Scripture records, and that is to die and rise again. But for Adam, the content of that saving faith was simply that God would bring life and victory through human reproduction. It's very simple. We see it in Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God promised that a seed of the woman would be bruised on the heel by the serpent, but he would ultimately crush the serpent's head. We see in Genesis 3.17 that the ground was cursed because of man and all the days of his life, and eventually these would result in death. The domain that man was given to rule was not going to be blessed and productive. In fact, it was now cursed and unproductive. And he himself would not be blessed in his life, but rather would suffer death because he had separated himself from the source of life. But God promised through that seed, life, and Adam believed it. And we see his faith demonstrated. The faith that undergirds this action saved him. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now Adam could have come out of all of this cursing by God and said, well, I was kind of the last one in the chain I don't think my punishment should be so bad. Why am I the one dying here? Why is the ground not going to yield for me? I mean, sure, make it not work for the woman, but I mean, she made me do this. We see his heart change. In fact, he is not focused at all on his own curse. He's not focused at all on the woman's curse. He's focused on the serpent's curse. Because this is how God has promised to restore what was lost through the seed of the woman. And Adam trusted God for that. And immediately what happens? God covers him. God covers his nakedness, his shame. Eve also believed. Eve trusted in this promise of a coming seed that it would be somehow a savior. She says, or the scripture says in Genesis 4.1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man child, the Lord. A human child and the object, the Lord. It's possible that they even understood the incarnation at this point. I mean, they hadn't had any other children to begin with. This becomes more of a problem for us to understand and to grapple with because we have millennia of non-divine births. But God said he was going to fix the problem. And they understood the monument that this problem was. And that God was going to fix it. Eve and Adam, their faith can be summarized as this. What would he do? 
He would crush the serpent's head. He would destroy the enemy. And it would result in redeeming humanity. Who was he? Divine by origin. Whether or not he himself was a divine being, we don't know if they knew that. But they knew that this would be a gift from God and that it would come through the woman. This was what they believed. They believed what God told them about the seed. Now, when we move forward in Genesis a bit, we see that Lamech had a son who I think he believed would be the promised seed. He says, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. He's focused on the restoration of this dominion, this kingdom that man has been given rule of, but has separated himself from the will of God. Lamech is looking for a restorer. But now what is the gospel that we believe? What is it that we believe that secures our salvation forever? The content for us is who saves us? Jesus, the Christ, Messiah. And what did he do? He died and he rose again for our sins, taking care of the sin problem. We find it best in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. Paul records that this is the very gospel that he believed as well. And this is what secured his salvation also. For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve now that he was buried and that he appeared, these are evidences of the truth to the statements that Jesus died and rose again. And according to the scriptures, gives us even better evidence because God's very word records this. And God cannot lie. We have the testimony of God to these truths and we have the testimony of men to these truths. And the truth that we believe is Jesus, the Christ, died for our sins, and rose again on the third day. This is not complicated. This is very simple. But who is the Christ, the Messiah? He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the God-Man, the incarnate. We don't have to understand how this works. It's a difficult concept to understand, this hypostatic union. Understanding the functionality of how God did it is probably harder than understanding why it's called the hypostatic union. But if we don't believe that he is God, then he is not powerful enough to save mankind for their, from their sins. If he is just another man, then he cannot die for another man because he himself would be part of this sinful human race. But if he is not a man, then he cannot die in the place of men. Hebrews tells us that this is why he came in the flesh, so that he could stand in our place. He must be God and he must be man. In other words, he must be the Messiah. In fact, 
that he would die and that he would rise again were also understood in the Old Testament as what the Messiah would do. That he would suffer a fatal wound and that God would raise him up again. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is who he said he is and he did what he said he did. And this secures for us life. And this is what we believe. Jesus, the Messiah, died and rose again for our salvation. What did Abram believe? Again, the only thing that changes is the content. Everything else is exactly the same. He believed God's seed promise. And what did he believe? That this Savior seed promised to Eve would come from his own body. This is what he believed. And he trusted God. And so Abram's faith is that this Savior would be his son or his descendant and that it would come from God to him. Talk about simple. The gospel has always been simple. God does not make it complicated for us to come to him, but we have to come to him through the seed. We have to come to him through the Messiah. And he says to Abram, actually he says this in Isaiah, he says, behold, I will do a new thing. It will spring forth and will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And what's he talking about? Redemption of his people. He is going to give drink to his chosen people, which he formed for himself. He is using this seed through the body of Abram to restore creation. He's going to create Israel, and from Israel he is going to produce the Messiah. And this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is its foundation. This promised seed, this looking forward to the Messiah who will fulfill this covenant. When Abram had trusted in that promise from God, Moses noted that this faith that he had in God, not that it was brand new, but that he had assurance of, this is the same basis upon which the covenant would be fulfilled. And so it is the same basis upon which the covenant is built. And the result to Abram, notice, is not the forgiveness of sins, but it is the transference of righteousness. Romans will tell us that God looked over the sins previously committed in anticipation of the Son. It was God's grace and forbearance, his love towards us and his patience towards us, because he knew that his Son was coming to pay the penalty for us. That he overlooked those sins and what stood between mankind and God was a lack of righteousness. But that we could also receive that righteousness in the object of that saving faith. The seed promise and the righteousness of that coming Savior was transferred to Abram before he knew his name, before he knew what he would do to save us. The righteousness of that promised seed was reckoned 
to Abram as righteousness, and the same is true for us. The moment we put our trust in Jesus and his finished work rather than ourselves and the work that we try to do to be saved, God adds righteousness to our account. You see, when he forgave our sins, he took us from unrighteousness, negative infinity, to slate wiped clean. Slate wiped clean, zero righteousness is not good enough. But we must have righteousness added to our account. And when righteousness is added to our account, then we are back in relationship with God. Having your bank account debt forgiven doesn't fill your bank account. It just means that you are out from under the burden that you cannot pay yourself. But you cannot add to your account for salvation what is necessary to be saved. Only Jesus can. And so Romans 4.25, commenting on what happened in Abram's life, Paul writes, for if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If the things that Adam or that Abram was doing was adding righteousness to his account, then he could boast and say that I did it. I saved myself. I brought myself to this eternal reward, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited as a favor or grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And now if anyone ever tells you that faith is a work, point them just about anywhere in scripture that talks about faith and works, and they are pitted against one another as opposites. Now, work should result from faith. It should. But it doesn't have to in order for the faith to be saving faith. If we want our faith to work, not for salvation, but for its goal, outward living, then work will result. But it works for God because its object is his son. And his son's work is added to our account. God justified Abram, not because of his turn towards faithfulness that we just recently saw in the text, but because he had originally trusted in that promise of a coming seed through himself, that God would give him a descendant and that that would be his redemption. Now, 30 minutes into the sermon, we move to the text for this week. After this note from the editor, Moses, he returns to the main line of the story and says, he said to him, that is God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Another I am statement, although the verb here is implied, but it's just the same in Hebrew. I am the Lord. This is his name, Yahweh, his name of covenant faithfulness, his name of dependability, of relationship. And he says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. 
he is recalling his past faithfulness to Abram. He says, I brought you out of there and I brought you into here. And I had two purposes in that. My purpose in bringing you out of Ur the Chaldeans was to give you this land. And my purpose in giving you this land was that you would possess it. This is two purposes. Ownership and experience. Now in Exodus 20, we see God begins another covenant in the same manner. He recalls his past faithfulness. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is on the basis of God's integrity that he begins his covenants. This is the power behind the, or the staying power behind the covenants, God's faithfulness. And so Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? This is not a question of God's faithfulness, but a question of Abram's ability. He doesn't say, how will I know that you will give me possession of it, but how will I know that I will possess it? His focus is on himself. He knows he is unable. God is going to give him assurance on the basis of God's integrity. God had given him a sign for the promise of a seed. Abram is asking for some sort of sign or assurance of the promise of possessing the land. And look at how God assured Abram of the coming seed. He told him to go out and count the stars, and if you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Not just innumerable, but as the stars. The stars are a fixed order, something that even today the Jews are able to look up into the night sky, and we are able to look up into the night sky and see God's faithfulness. Those stars are still there. This fixed order still continues. God's purposes must be fulfilled before this fixed order can depart. In Genesis 6, God had told Noah that he would establish a covenant with him. But he was going to destroy the rest of the world. After the destruction of that world was complete, and God brought Noah through it and out of it, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again curse the ground on account of man, that he will never again destroy every living thing as he has done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. These fixed orders of nature. God is going to uphold them until his purposes are complete in this world. God is adding to his program of purpose this covenant with Abram, this promise of a seed. Until God is victorious in this area, this creation will not pass away. Otherwise, what will it look like? Just as God is faithful to Israel when they come out of Egypt, because Moses reminds him, what is Egypt going to say if you destroy us here in the wilderness? When they look at you and your integrity, what will they think? And God, who swears by heaven and earth, who swears by himself, 
says that this order will not pass away. He will not destroy it until he has been vindicated. Creation was not lost in Eden. It was usurped. God's will was no longer enacted through his human agents, but rather the serpent's will. If God lets this creation pass away with the serpent still standing as the ruler over mankind, where mankind enacts Satan's will to oppose God, if God lets this creation pass away under those conditions, then God has failed in this creation, and that simply cannot be. God's integrity is tied up in his covenant promises. God will bring about everything he has promised because he will be vindicated in this creation. He will be glorified. I'm going to skip this for time's sake, but if you want to see the integrity of God's word, look back to the sermon that we did on 1 John 5, 9 through 13. God continues to say, I have given you a testimony. I have testified. I've given you a testimony. Testimony, and what is that testimony? Testimony is the word of God that declares that we have eternal life in his son. How do we know that we are saved? Because our salvation is wrapped up in his son and God has said it in his word and his word is trustworthy. Well, now we turn to this strange covenant or this covenant with a strange ritual rather. Abram has asked for assurance, and God's response is to tell Abram, bring for me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then Abram brings to him these things. And without instruction from God, he begins to cut them in two. And he lays each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. He did this without instruction from God because Abram understood what God was doing. He understood the necessity for these critters and he understood the ritual that was taking place because he's asked for assurance. And in his culture, he was very familiar with these sorts of royal grant covenants, royal grant rituals, where some royal or king or suzerain is promising to a subjugated party or a weaker vassal, he's promising him some sort of grant of either land or gift, treasure, and these covenants are bilateral. That means there's two parties to these covenants, and they pass between the pieces of these severed animals as a self-imprecatory oath. Now, that's another big word, imprecatory. We have the imprecatory psalms, which are declarations of destruction, calling God to enact destruction. They kind of stand out in the canon but imprecatory simply means impending judgment. And so the oath that they take is similar to the oath that we might say very casually in English, uh, cross my heart and hope to die 
stick a needle in my eye. The idea of this is if I'm lying or if I break my word, then these things should occur to me. The purpose of severing these animals in half and passing between them is to say that if either one of us breaks this covenant that we've made to one another, then this should happen to us. That we should be divided in two. Now, there were four different kinds of covenants that were very common in those days. The covenant of the shoes, where you'd swap shoes until the job is done, and then you can give your shoes back. This is the least uh, binding covenant. There's a cool covenant that they have where you dip your thumb in somebody's salt pouch and then put it in your own. The idea is that the grains of salt could never be retrieved. It is a permanent covenant. But this covenant is the most binding. This is a blood covenant. A covenant which has at issue life and death. The Hittites, who Abram has already encountered in the city of Dan up north in Israel, the Hittites had what was called an Eniwianus ceremony, and it was popular around the time that Abram was cutting this covenant with God. It was performed in hopes of receiving a male heir. It was a similar ritual to these royal land grants, and it was performed by dividing a dog into two pieces and walking between it. Another covenant was the Assyrian, we find in the Assyrian Mari tablets. It is the covenant of Asher Nirari and Mati'ilu, and it's performed in a suzerain vassal format, which means that there is an overlord and an underlord. And the overlord is promising protection and a grant to this underlord. This may have been the same kind of covenant that Keter Laumer was in with the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. He was an overlord, and he had these vassal states in the Transjordan area. This was performed by tearing off the head of a lamb. And in fact, we have a quote from these Mari tablets, and it is a little gruesome, so... Fair warning. But the quote reads, This head is not the head of a lamb. It's the head of Mati'ilu. If Mati'ilu sins against this somat or covenant, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, the head of Mati'ilu will be torn off, and so his sons. This is the kind of covenant that Abram is entering into with God. A self-imprecatory covenant. Now it appears that Abram is preparing himself to walk through these pieces with God. He is the vassal in this situation. He is the underlay. He's expecting covenant obligations that he'll be faithful to, and he's expecting God to have covenant obligations that he'll be responsible to. So he has cut these pieces in half. He's laid them out opposite each other, creating a path between where he will walk or where he expects to walk. But then something happens. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now there is no end in the commentaries to what this means symbolically. But there is nothing in the text to tell us that this is symbolic of anything. Neither is this a prophecy. This is what happened. This is an historical account. And in fact, this isn't even very surprising. If you 
put a can of tuna in front of a cat, you can't be surprised that it's going to try to eat it. If you cut up animals and leave them out in the heat of the day in Israel, you cannot be surprised if vultures come down and try to eat it. This isn't surprising. And the normal course of things do not constitute bad omens. This is just what would be expected. Abram drove them away. Now the question might be, why is this included in the text then? Well, first of all, it's what happened. And maybe it was interesting enough to Moses that he included it. But remember, Scripture is written by two authors. Scripture has its human author, and it has its divine author. And this is a passage that I like to put in the pile of God's thumbprint on Scripture, where we can see that although God has not revealed everything to man, God knows the beginning from the end. In other words, if you cut up bodies in the land of Egypt, you can expect the birds of prey to come and feed. And it's more than simple coincidence that this event occurs around the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that promises Israel victory, that promises the seed line of Abram, that they will live in their land, that they will have their Messiah, and that they will be blessed by God. And remember Genesis 12:3, where God told them, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what happens then if God breaks this covenant? Jumping the gun here, I'll tell you, God's the one who's going to walk through this row of animal carcasses and bind himself to fulfill this covenant. If God were to break this covenant, which is impossible for him because he sees beginning and end and he cannot lie, then it is God who would bring upon himself destruction. An impossibility. God cannot fail. If Abram were to walk through these pieces and be given conditions and he were to fail, he would be cut in two. Why? Because he is standing between this covenant and its fulfillment. And God has already promised that he would curse in kind those who would curse Abram, those who would stand between Abram and the promise of God's blessing. Well, although this had not yet been revealed, to Moses, or to Abram, God knew in his mind what the end would look like. And he left crumbs for us to see that he has always known. He is omnipotent. He is not bound by time. And if we turn to the book of Matthew in chapter 24 and Jesus, who is telling us about the end that is to come, he tells us about the tribulation period, how Israel will be brought through tribulation and then have the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled to them at the end of that tribulation. It says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of those elect, the days will be cut short. Now this looks forward to a period of future persecution, similar to the persecution that in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to the descendants of Israel through Abram in Egypt. In fact, that's not the only time they're going to be scattered. They'll be scattered into Egypt or held in captivity in Egypt. And then they'll be brought into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. And then there'll be the diaspora after they refuse the Messiah and the kingdom. But God is going to bring them back at the end of those days of darkness. And he will fulfill this covenant to them. But while they are fleeing from the false Messiah who makes a false covenant with them, a covenant of death, he will break that covenant of peace with them. He will begin to persecute them, and it will be the worst persecution that they have ever experienced. And most of us were alive in the 20th century, including myself, surprisingly. And we know that the 20th century saw such incredible persecution on the children of Israel that we should shudder in our boots when we read passages like this and think that this is going to be worse. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, and it is hard to take. And to think that what they have in their future is even worse. They're going to be chased into the wilderness by the false Messiah who breaks his covenant with them. They're told not to believe him when he says that the Christ has come because the coming of Christ will be unmistakable. It says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, you can't miss it. The entire world will see it. And then he inserts, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And then he continues to speak about the coming of the Messiah. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect Israel from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. God is going to bring Israel into their land to fulfill his covenant to them after a time of distress. In Revelation 19.11, we see this as well. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now that robe dipped in blood you see in Isaiah 63 comes from trampling the winepress of God outside of Israel as he marches from Edom up towards Jerusalem in the war against the Antichrist. Revelation 19.15 said, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe, and on his thigh, 
He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the coming King. But what happens then? At the end of his return, at the end of this battle, John records, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all the men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horses and against his army. The worst thing you can possibly do is stand between God and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is not just a self-imprecation, but a warning on those who would harm God's covenant people, who would keep them from the land. In Habakkuk, which was one of the most popular books among the Hebrews during the silent period between the last prophet and the arrival of Jesus, we barely ever study it, but for them, it was one of the most read books. And it's, it's a prophecy, but it's written kind of like Psalms. They're songs that Habakkuk wrote. But he wrote in Habakkuk 3, verse 11, Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows. At the radiance of your gleaming spear and indignation, you marched through the earth, and in anger you trampled the nations. He's looking forward to that time where God will vindicate Israel. He's looking forward to the end when these fixed orders are altered by God in judgment. And he says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, for you struck the house of the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, to cut him in two from groin up through his neck. This is how Jesus will slay the false Messiah. He cuts him in two in the most peculiar way possible. Not through the middle, not lopping off his head, but in the same way that this covenant sacrifice was prepared, split right down the middle. You pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trample on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. And Habakkuk notes, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Why is he so disturbed? He's looking at the victory of God for Israel because I must wait quietly for the days of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk knows that this victory is only going to come through incredible persecution on the people of God. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold 
and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. All right, we will quickly move through the last part, this implementation now of the covenant. It's set up. It's ready to go. Abram's ready to walk through it. And as the sun is going down, Abram falls into a deep sleep. He doesn't just fall asleep, but he falls into a deep sleep, reminiscent of when God formed Eve. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God is creating something new through Abram, something new that is going to come from the body of Abram. And in order to do this, he puts him into a deep sleep so that God is still the creator and man is not a participant. This is the way that God created man. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And this is how God created Israel. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by my name. You are mine. And so now God answers Abram's question. Abram said, how can I know that I will possess it? And God answers him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers, dispossessed. Know that they will be dispossessed in a land that is not theirs. In other words, this possession of the land is not going to come immediately. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Talk about a heartbreaking statement. And thank goodness God does not leave it right here. But 400 years is longer than any lifetime that Abram is familiar with seeing, although I guess Shem and, uh, and I can't remember his other descendants' name. They're still alive, and they're about 600 now. But no one born at this time is outliving 400 years. The people who go into Egypt are going to die there. Even if Abram went in, he would die there. In Exodus 1, 8 through 9, actually, we won't go through all this. We see that Exodus 1 links in almost every statement to this promise of sojourning, slavery, and oppression. Moses is saying that this happened just as God said it would. Moses is saying this is the land that we were told we would come into and where we would be slaves. Notice it doesn't say Egypt. It doesn't say I'm going to send your children into Egypt, that same place that you went to and kicked around for a bit until you were sent away. Perhaps if he had said it's Egypt, Israel would have made like Jonah and headed in the opposite direction. Israel went into Egypt, and they were enslaved and oppressed for 430 years, Exodus 12.40 tells us. Now, without getting into all the complicated arguments, 400 years is a round number. And God has a reason for using a round number when talking to Abram. It's not just incidental. 
the specific number of years that they were in Israel was 430 years. God predicted 400 years round number because he has something else to tell Abram. He says they'll be there for four generations. So God is telling Abram what a generation is, 100 years. Right now, Abram is 86 years old when he receives this covenant. He is going to give birth to the promised seed son, or rather the, his wife will give birth to the promised seed son when Abram is 100 years old, the beginning of a new generation. It's all tied up here in God's ability to know beginning from end. Abram shouldn't have even started fretting until the end of 100 years. And even then, God is the God who created mankind out of dust. God can surely create a descendant out of much less. These four generations we see in Exodus 6, we've got the sons of Levi, the old, or the one son was Kohath. Son of Kohath was Amram. The son of Amram was Moses. These four generations lived in Egypt, and it was in the generation of Moses that they departed from Egypt. God is faithful, and as Abram or as Moses is recording this for the children of Israel, they should see scattered all throughout this, God is faithful to this covenant. Now you see, it's, it is very significant as well that God did not just give Abram promises in this Abrahamic covenant that would come to pass at the very end of time, but he gave him details in the Abrahamic covenant that would occur within just a few generations. And just as certainly and just as surely as those promises were fulfilled, so God is going to fulfill the other promises as well. Just as God promised dispossession from the land before possession, he was faithful to repossess them to the land. So he will be faithful to his covenant overall. He also says that when they come out, they will come out with many possessions. And though it's strange to, under, or to even try to understand why exactly this happened when they left, they simply asked their captors for plunder, and they gave it to them. Who knows why? God knows. They plundered Egypt, and they didn't even have to take it by force. I guess they asked them on a good day, and they packed up everything in the cash register and sent them out with it. But what does he say to Abram? He says to Abram, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. This is an idiom for dying. You shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. Not just an old age, but an old age that has peace involved and goodness. Abram is not going to have this hard life that his descendants will have. Abram will live in peace in the land that God had promised him. And just like Daniel who will not see the fulfillment of God's kingdom program in his lifetime. Abram has the hope and the promise of resurrection into this land. We'll see in a couple of chapters that Abram understands resurrection. He understands that God is able to bring life from death. That's exactly what he does in the womb of Sarah. But in Daniel 12, 13, Daniel's told, As for you, go your way to the end, 
then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion in the end of the age. So it's very similar to what God told Abram. He says, in the fourth generation, you will return here because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Why is God not having Abram possess his land yet? Because as we saw in the passage in Matthew and in Revelation, as we will see in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, when Lord willing, we get there, the Abrahamic covenant marks the end of the world as we know it. God will fulfill his purposes in this world and then he will create another one, destroying all sin and evil in this world. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant has been delayed because of God's grace, because God is being gracious towards every individual who is born, that they might get to enjoy the blessings of this covenant. And so, in the same way, this covenant is not established or is not fulfilled immediately to Israel. They're dispossessed for a time, even persecuted. But when they come back, they will come back because the people they are about to dispossess have become so completely filled with sin that God cannot withstand his judgment anymore. This has to do with the doctrine of civilizations that we discussed when we saw the flood how God perforated the nation so he could judge one alone without having to judge the entire world, so that this corruption wouldn't spread from one nation to the next to the next. This is why we have borders. This is why we have distinct languages, because man's sin enjoys company. But these sins of the Amorites will come to such a degree that God will have to judge them, and he has to judge them by sending them out of the land. And we see this in Deuteronomy 18, when he brings Israel in to dispossess them. He says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughters pass through the fire. They were burning their children as sacrifices. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Because the sins of the Amorites reached its limit and God is ready to bring ultimate judgment on that land. Israel will not receive their promise because God is being gracious towards sinners. And it's the same today. Israel has not had their Abrahamic covenant fulfilled to them yet today because God is being gracious to sinners. Because as we saw in Revelation, when this covenant is fulfilled, land, seed, and blessing, everyone who does not partake in it through the Messiah will be killed. God's grace is at the center here. Genesis 15, 17 is where we see a turn of events that surprises us. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Now again, commentaries go in every direction here to try to explain this oven and this torch. Some dig their heels in and say this can't possibly be representing God because God can't self-imprecate. He can't 
implicate himself in a death penalty. But yes, he can. First, because he's God, and second, because he cannot fail. It is not a good argument that God just can't because I don't like it. God did, whether we like it or not. And we know this because this smoke and this flame is not only a common and well-understood image of God's presence in all of Scripture, but especially to the children of Israel, who, as they're reading the book of Genesis for the first time, need only to look up, perhaps to their left or perhaps to their right, and they will see either a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire leading them by day and by night. God's presence restored to them, bringing them back into the land that he promised he would bring. The same parties that walked through the center of this covenant and promised that Israel would take possession of their land is leading Israel from Egypt back to the promised land. He is being faithful to his covenant. I'm skipping all the proof texts. They're in the outline. When they come back, they will dispossess those who have dwelled in their land until this time. God has given to them this land. Genesis 15, 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. This is how we know this is a royal land grant. Because in, oops, that should say Genesis 12, 7. In Genesis 12, 7, what did God say when he brought Abram into the land? To your descendants, I will give this land. I will give them ownership of it. And here he says, I have given them ownership. The land, the creation is God's to give. And he says, it belongs to your children now. God will fulfill his promises. And what is the land of Israel? Is it the little 30-mile strip that we see today? Most assuredly, it is not. God gave them a great swath of land, much bigger even than the contemporaries of that day, even larger than the land of Egypt. It is from the river of Egypt to the river of the Euphrates. Now, there's a lot of debate. What is the river of Egypt? Some say it's the Nile River. Others say it's Wadi al-Arish, which goes down the center of the Sinai Peninsula. The Wadi al-Arish, though, is never called a river. It's called a brook, and it only flows during the winter months. Nine months at least out of the year, it's not a river or even a brook. It's just a wadi that's empty. But the Nile also is not the river of Egypt because otherwise they're already in the promised land. God has no need to bring them out of Egypt because they're already in the land that's theirs. So if it's not the Wadi al-Arish or the Nile, what is the river of Egypt? Well, even though I said it's not the Nile, it kind of is. They're in Goshen, which is on the eastern side of the Nile River Delta. And the very eastern point of the river is called the Pelusiac branch of the Nile River. And this was considered in that time the border of Israel, or the border of Egypt. This river designated the eastern end of Egypt. This is the Pelusiac as it reaches the Reed Sea, where they crossed. 
God is going to bring them through or out of Egypt into their land. And they're even going to wander in their land, but they won't go up and enter into the portion that Abram had lived in. In Exodus 23, 31, he says, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea. This is the western border of Israel. So it includes the entire Sinai Peninsula. Now, when I went to Jordan, the Jordanian tour guide said, oh, no, 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 that cannot be. None of the land of Midian, none of the land of Edom, none of the land of any of this, none of that has ever or will ever belong to Israel. But that's not what God says, because he says, your boundary is from the Red Sea to the Philistine Sea, which is up in Gaza today, which also they claim is not Israel. But it is. It is Israel. And we really frustrated our Jordanian guy, that, that poor guy, because when we were traveling up the King's Highway in the Transjordan, uh, our, our other tour guide who brought us to Israel was saying, now all of this is the land of Israel. And he's just steaming there. But it is Israel. God said it is. He is bringing them, their boundaries, the Red Sea, the Sea of the Philistines, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the river of the Euphrates. That is a massive swath of land that they do not possess today. In fact, you can see their tiny little swath of land that they sit in today. But God is going to make all of this land theirs. Not only do they get these geographical uh, distributions of the land, but they also get the political or ethnographic. He says it'll belong to the Kenites or those who are down in the south regions of Arabah. That became Judah. The Kenizzites, which is Hebron. And then the Kadmonites, which is just simply the Hebrew word for Easterners. In other words, just everyone to the east. That's all going to be yours. The Hittites, which lived in the northern part of Israel. The Perizzites in the central, the Rephaim on both sides of the Jordan. The Amorite, which again means Westerners. So he's got the east and the west. He's got the northern borders, the Hittites, all the way up to the northern point of the Euphrates. The Canaanites who live in the west central, the Girgashites in the eastern central, and the Jebusites smack dab in the middle in Jerusalem. This is all going to belong to Israel. This all belongs to Israel, but they will possess it one day when the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided through the seed descendant of Adam and Eve, of Abram, in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We thank you that when we place our trust in him and his finished work, he is a strong and perfect agent who is able to save. We thank you that we are able to enjoy fellowship with you through the blessings of the new covenant. And uh, we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.